Let's begin by saying their names. Aaron Salter, Ruth Whitfield, Pearl Young, Celestine Cheney, Roberta Drury, Hayward Patterson, Margus Morrison, Andre McNeil, Geraldine Talley, and Catherine Massey. All 10 were killed Saturday when an 18-year-old racist white man opened fire with an assault rifle at a Topps grocery store in Buffalo. All 10 were black, and three more were injured. A lengthy document the shooter posted online made it very clear that this was a targeted attack. And his bigotry was written not only online, but on the barrel of his weapon, where he'd scrawled the N-word. Now, my thoughts all weekend have been on these victims and the families that are grieving this tragedy. I'm also thinking of the survivors, including children who were hiding in freezers and running towards a back door, scared out of their wits. That moment will be with them forever, especially the black shoppers who now know that someone hated the color of their skin so much that he wanted them all dead. Now, all mass shootings are painful, and frankly, this country has seen far too many of them. But a mass shooting at the grocery store location where I shopped regularly with my family when we lived in Buffalo six years ago, that hit close to home. There really are no words. So as we start another day here at Reset, let's do our best to try and process this news. Joining me now is Watson Jones III, Senior Pastor of Compassion Baptist Church on the southeast side. Pastor Jones, welcome to Reset. Thank you, Sasha, for having me. Also with us to share her thoughts is Charlene Carruthers, author and activist based here in Chicago. Welcome, Charlene. Thank you for having me. I'll start with you, Charlene. What did you think and what did you feel when you first heard this news and realized that this was an assault on a black community? Well, I went right back to Mother Emanuel. I went right back to so many moments in which black people were engaged in everyday activities and uh, a young white person entered their space of leisure, their space of worship, their space of just being and taking and, and took their lives. And so I'm feeling devastated, sad and angry for the people whose lives were taken, the folks who survived, and also the loved ones of everyone who is directly impacted uh, by the violence that happened uh, in Buffalo. Of course, you mentioned Emmanuel. You're talking about 2015, when uh, yeah. nine black churchgoers were shot and killed at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. My mind went there. I know a lot of folks' minds jumped back to that time. Pastor, how about you? Yes, I want to second what Charlene says. My mind goes back to Emmanuel. I think of the bombing in Alabama, uh, where the young girls were at church and were killed innocently. Uh, for me, I feel like I I've, I've fight back bitterness and anger, um, specifically at the people who perpetuate this kind of stuff. And so um, it's deeply heartbreaking, deeply sad. I think about the families who have lost their loved ones who were going out on a routine shopping event. I think about even the fact that Tops is closed now mm -hmm. and the number of people in the community who are going to be affected by that for, for, for a while, you know, thinking about fear of going back to a store or people who are relying on that store for medicine, for groceries. Now I have to figure something else out. I, I think um, there's a part of me that also feels like this is nothing new. Uh, and it's sad that that's even a statement. Um, yeah. The so question I, I keep coming back to, Pastor, is why? Uh, 
and and we're getting more answers as the days go on. We know now that the shooter was driven by white supremacist ideology, but even as we get more details, I still wonder why. Yeah, so do I. I think this is this is to me another picture of the hate that hate births. Uh, I look at this guy who perpetuated this this heinous act, and he does not fit whatever people would say the stereotype of that kind of person is. This person lived in New York, obviously not in Buffalo, but he lived in a, the most northern, one of the most northern states, number one, mm-hmm. which shows us that this kind of thinking is not isolated to the margins of our society anymore. It's very much around us. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I think about the fact that this hate continues to go unchecked. I wonder what did his parents teach him? What, what did he hear his grandparents say? What did he hear his community members say uh, that would, you know, perpetuate this sort of indoctrination um, we know that it's with us. I mean, just even in Evanston, three nooses are hanging from a tree. This kind of climate in which we live in is one that doesn't really hold accountable uh, the free speech element of hate that is allowed to just float and yeah. just go as it goes. And you let the wrong person get it and let it feel like it answers all of the evils in their lives and it, it doesn't stop them from picking up a gun to kill people whom they hate, who, who they never met, by the way, never knew, never sat with, never spoke to, but, but to them are the embodiment of everything evil in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Charlene, you know, as the pastor said, the people at Tops, um, they were shopping for food, right? Mm-hmm. People at the church in, in South Carolina were doing Bible study, it's starting to feel like there's no place to be safe, right? Ahmaud Arbery wasn't safe, just mm-hmm. jogging. Breonna Taylor was asleep at her bed. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, you know, I have been wrestling with the language being used to describe this particular moment, be it from the President of the United States, President Biden, saying that, you know, this um, is outside of the fabric of the United States or the rhetoric that this is um, a hate, this should be designated as a hate crime. What happened um, to these folks in the violence that occurred in Buffalo at the grocery store that resulted in the the death of 10 black people who are mostly elders, Mm -hmm. older black folks who didn't get to live out the, the, the fullness of their lives is indeed a part of the fabric of this country. And yes, it's not new, but, it is, to me, hate doesn't fully capture the violence because what we're seeing here is an emotion that is backed up by policy, practice, uh, decades of legislation, decades of budgets, money, all of these things. His ideas are resourced beyond him as an individual. They're resourced through networks, through um, educational institutions, through everyday people, faith-based institutions, economic and political institutions in this country. And so black people have never had, on this particular land, lived with any consistent sense or access to safety. Any safety that we have is generated and produced by ourselves and those Mm -hmm. who are our co-conspirators. You bring up language, um, Charlene. When 18-year-old Michael Brown was killed by police in Ferguson, 
yeah. Missouri back in 2014. The Associated Press called him at the time a, a black man. Yes. And over the weekend, the AP initially called this shooter, who's same age, a, quote, white teenager. Mm-hmm. They later corrected that to 18-year-old white man. What do you make of that discrepancy? Well, I believe that all language is intentional and that the language that is most oftentimes used to describe black people uh, regularly strips away our sense of personhood. And one can even uh, go further to talk about uh, humanity. But I even think humanity doesn't really capture who we are, doesn't really capture who we are in the world. And so Michael Brown wasn't even considered to be a child. Couldn't even they couldn't even fathom it. But to me, I'm more concerned with how we talk about the actions of this young person, this young person, this young white person, uh, and the, 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 his actions and the rhetoric that backs that up. Mm-hmm. And we can, I, I of course, want to designate Mike Brown as, as a teenager because he was a teenager. But what do we associate with black youth? What do we associate with black elderhood? And that is more oftentimes, not just in our rhetoric, but in the very legislation in this country, our policies, uh, not a, the same things aren't afforded to us that are afforded to white people. So I, I care about the language. But I want to be really clear that the language is tied to practices and policies and money that governs and impacts our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. Pastor, um, in recent years, we have seen the number of terrorist attacks and mass shootings by white extremists increase. Why do you think that is, and what, what do you make of it? Oh, man, I think it's an ancient root. Um, it's, it's one, I mean, I think it goes right back to uh, the fact that, you know, the North could, would not really deal with the South on some of their whack or disturbing thoughts about Black people post-slavery. Uh, I think also there's this growing um, belief among white people, some, that they are somehow being replaced by others and and that that brings fear in their hearts that makes them feel like in order well they want to first get away from uh the possibility of retribution or things happening to them that was perpetuated on other people uh and so i think it's there's a sense where people are are fed these lies and they live in echo chambers where no one outside of them is able to educate them beyond what they know. I think we see this same thing, you know, even if I think about rhetoric, we see this same thing happening among people who are throwing up this fight against critical race theory Mm -hmm. and calling everything in schools that talks about race, critical race theory, and therefore categorically wrong. Um, This is, this is the the refusal to, to face reality as it is. Um, and to understand uh, and to see people as people, yeah. similar to, to, to what Charlene said, to see people as people, to see us as humans and not something other. Um, yeah. In 2019, right-wing extremists perpetrated nearly two-thirds of the terrorist attacks and plots in the U.S. And uh, this is language from the Homeland Security's Homeland Threat assessment uh, back in October 2020. It says, among domestic violent extremists, racially and ethnically ethnically motivated violent extremists, specifically white supremacist extremists, they will remain the most persistent and lethal threat in the homeland. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you are just tuning in, we're speaking with Watson Jones III, senior pastor of Compassion Baptist Church, 
on Chicago's southeast side, and Charlene Carruthers, who's an author and activist based here in Chicago. In a few minutes, we are going to examine why white extremist attacks are on the rise in this country and what's motivating people like this shooter in Buffalo. Right now, we're simply just trying to process the news and the pain after a mass shooting that took 10 black lives. Sticking with you for another moment here, Pastor, you've said that this story also highlights the need for fair policing in this country. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I think you, you see a common theme whenever a white man kills black people or any group of people, for that matter, on a mass shooting kind of situation. For whatever reason, the police is able to capture and apprehend that person without killing that person. Now, I'm not one to advocate violence, and I don't celebrate death of anybody, uh, whereas there's constant stories that fly through the news on a weekly basis almost of an unarmed black person being killed in some kind of way. And usually whenever there is discussion about why black people are being killed in this way, obviously the rhetoric goes like they were violent, they were resisting, they showed they were, we felt like our lives were in danger. That's that's what the gentleman said about Laquan McDonald. Um, this shows us that police do have capacity to to deal with heavily armed individuals. This 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 guy who shot the store up yeah. had was was fully armed. With with heavy artillery rifle, with with metal on his legs, on his body, on his head, and some kind of way they got him to unarm himself. Um, this is an evi- This to me is evidence that, and I'm you know I'm not necessarily saying that people should be met with all kinds of violence either, but I'm saying that there is an inconsistency in how police deal with and address African American and Latino people in this country, whereas a white person can commit the absolute heinous crime of killing innocent unarmed people and can be apprehended without a scratch placed on it. Mm-hmm. That's evidence of, of inequality in policing to me. Charlene, your, your book's called Unapologetic, a Black, Queer, and Feminist Mandate for Radical Movements. What are you hearing from fellow activists and, and advocates here in our city right now? Mm-hmm. So I think, unfortunately, this is another moment where we see the failure of state institutions that receive literally just in Chicago billions of dollars um, uh, with a claim to keep people safe. We we see them failing. We saw them fail in Buffalo. They didn't prevent um, the people in Buffalo from being massacred, and they in turn successfully apprehended the the person who who, who entered that place and and killed them. And so here in Chicago and, and, and other places as well, People are once again saying, where are we putting our resources? Where are we putting our money and our energy? And what we see, and uh, we see over and over again, just this past weekend, uh, what happened in Millennium Park um, um, in downtown Chicago, the solution by the mayor in response to uh, a death of a, of a young black person and the presence of a lot of, of young black people is to say that they can no longer be there. Is to shut it as down. Opposed to saying, yeah. Shut it down as opposed to saying, why don't we have programming for them at the park? Why don't we have programming for them in their neighborhoods? Oh, that actually costs money and resources and takes a political will to to shift budgetary priorities. So when we say defund the police, this is what we mean. We mean that instead of putting money in the Chicago Police Department, we mean providing services, programs that young people actually deserve 
to have in this city that I want my tax dollars to go towards. That's where I want my money to go towards. So that these young people have the things, the, the programming, the activities, the services in their neighborhoods, and also know that they are welcome downtown in every part of the city. I grew up here. I was born and raised on the South Side. Mm-hmm. So this isn't an exercise in futility for me or just like an abstract idea. It is where are young people, particularly young black and brown people, welcome in the city and where, where are they not? And if folks don't see the connection in between the violence that is perpetuated um, in our public school systems and social media and the news and in our government to the, the lack of resources that young people have, be they black, brown or white, to be full people and to see other people as full people, I don't know what else. To, there is a connection. And I just encourage people to see the connection and like where we should invest our time, our energy and our money, because where we've been doing that is not actually keeping us safe anywhere. Pastor, because you're taking care of a, a sick family member right now, you actually haven't had a chance to, to speak directly to your congregation at the uh, Compassion Baptist Church on yeah. East 95th Street. Uh, you do plan to talk to them about this mass shooting this Sunday, though. So talk about that. What role do you think you're going to play for your parishioners at this point, And what do you hope to get across to them? Yeah, so as a Christian preacher, I first believe that this ought not uh, make us hateful. Um, I think hate makes you unproductive, and and it, it really turns into a cancer upon yourself. So there's a part of us that says, you know, in order for us to really be productive, to see uh, real change, hate cannot be what festers in our hearts. So we have to find a way to exercise it out of our hearts. But I, but as a Christian, I also believe deeply in accountability. There are a number of things that I think need to be addressed. The fact that if this young man was indoctrinated by this mess, by stuff on the Internet, um, there there are things that need to be addressed about the, the freedom to access that kind of stuff. Um, there needs to be real accountability, even as we relate to law enforcement. I think that this this should not distract from the question you asked me just a second ago that as a church and as people in the community, as people who are citizens who pay taxes here, still have to be able to hold our police accountable mm-hmm. to, to fair and equal uh, policing. But it also should tell us, as, as I'll tell my congregation, that we need to be as people who love, but also people who push against this kind of injustice uh, to ensure that our communities are safe as well. We'll have to leave it there. That's Watson Jones III, Senior Pastor of Compassion Baptist Church, along with activist and author Charlene Carruthers. Her book is called Unapologetic, A Black, Queer, and Feminist Mandate for Radical Movements. Thank you both for joining us, and take care. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.